0: Hello and welcome to the money nerds podcast where owning a calculator budgeting your money and having a net worth is actually cool I'm your host Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show I'm very interested in how we teach women versus men about money. I think it's so important, and especially when it comes to dealing with kids or anybody that's from a younger generation. The way we talk about money and the types of topics that we talk about with men versus women tends to be different, unfortunately, while it should be the exact same we, I think we all kind of know men tend to have more conversations around investing and negotiation and things like that, more of the income earning side. And women tend to have more conversations around budgeting or stretching the dollar. So it's no surprise that this stuff really trickles down into our everyday lives. And it's such, such a part of our society that sometimes it's so ingrained, we don't even realize that we are doing that. We don't even realize we're having those types of conversations. That's why I was so excited about today's guest, Kimberly Davis. Kimberly Davis has more than 25 years of finance, legal, and corporate experience and is a managing partner and director at the Bonson Group, a bicoastal wealth management firm where she specializes in personal wealth advising. She's also a certified divorce financial analyst focusing on helping women transition to financial independence after life-altering events such as death or divorce. Kimberly is the host of The Fiscal Feminist, a podcast and a platform about women and their relationship with money and finance. She's also an author of a book called The Fiscal Feminist, and I highly recommend checking it out because it really details out a lot of the differences between men and women when it comes to money. But more than anything, it teaches you how to grow your money, which I think is such a huge, important step for so many people. In this episode, we cover a ton of ground. Here's a little sampling of what you're going to learn. We talk about where Kimberly's passion for finances really came from and her experience as a financial advisor. And it's a really powerful story that I think a lot of people can relate to. We talk about trying parts of Kimberly's life that served as financial lessons for her, unrealistic expectations around primary breadwinning and motherhood, How women can shift the conversation around money by addressing finance on the micro and macro levels. Why women need to be intentional with their career choices and realize that good is good enough. The importance of automation in your finances. How Kimberly advises people that feel like they are too far behind to start investing in their retirement. I hear this often. We talk about rethinking retirement norms starting the financial conversation with your parents and figuring out the best financial plan for them and how to navigate that. And of course, how to approach prenups and why it's not just about the income side. And we often don't think about the debt side of prenups, but it's a really important conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know I definitely learned a lot from Kimberly, and I think you will too. If you enjoyed this, make sure you do me the biggest favor and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast player that you're listening on. It means so much to me, and it really does help this show get in front of even more people. I am so grateful to all of you that listen in, and let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with my friend, Kimberly Davis. Hey guys, so welcome back to another episode. I am so excited to be joined by new author, Kimberly Davis, who has an incredible book called The Fiscal Feminist. I'm so excited to talk all things financial relations
1: with women. So Kimberly, thank you so much for hanging out. Well, Whitney, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to talk to your audience today and share a little bit about the book. It's The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women, but everything I have to say is equally applicable to men. So don't be put off by the name, the name, men you can listen to and learn.
0: I love it so much. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into talking to people about money? Where did that come from?
1: So I started off as being a corporate securities lawyer in New York, and I did that for many years and then I became an investment banker. And so that's kind of my roots of, you know, how I have my capital markets knowledge and my you know my kind of passion for it so to speak. I then went on to be, you know, I became a mom and I was a stay-at-home mom for a while. And then I had my own fashion company for a while. and, And I was doing that part when I lived in London. And then I moved back to the United States and decided I wanted to get back to my roots of capital markets. And so I got a job at Morgan Stanley as a financial advisor. And then ultimately, my group uh, at Morgan Stanley became independent advisors. We're now I'm now managing director and a partner at the Bonson Group, which is an independent financial advisor, registered financial advisor. So through my experience as a financial advisor, uh, that's how this book and, my, and the platform, The Fiscal Feminist, came to be. It was something that I'm very passionate about because I wanted to reach out to women of all economic strata to help them organize and take control of their finances so that they could become more empowered in their life and make better decisions and literally become CEO of their lives instead of other people controlling it or letting their money control them. Yeah. So, you know, it's been a journey through my It's a, it was a combination of my professional journey and then my life journey and the things that happened to me along the way, because I've had some real ups and downs and some of the downs have been defining moments, mm-hmm. which when I came out of those situations, uh, especially my divorce after 23 years and all the things that happened, and it was what they call a gray divorce because I was in my 50s, I thought, wow, I don't ever want any woman or man, for that matter, to live in the fear that I lived in for five or six years while this thing was unfolding. It was really, really unpleasant. And that the combination of my professional knowledge and my life journey brought me to this place.
0: It makes a lot of sense. I find so many of us that talk about money It does come from that place of we want to serve others. And more than anything, we want them to avoid some of the mistakes that maybe we made. I'm curious, aside from the divorce, can you take us back to a moment where you said things felt very trying for you, and maybe you came out ahead with a really good financial lesson from that?
1: Outside of the divorce, in another... Yeah, and, sure. Like maybe yeah, you I experienced mean, so, a lot of, a debt of or things. Of that. You know, look, I've been going through this journey since the '80s, right? So, a couple of things, like when I talk about career choices and also advocating for yourself, I have been in situations where, you know, I was fully aware after trying to negotiate or whatever, of not being paid the same amount as a male counterpart back in the '80s. You know, the, the Uh, the maternity leave thing in the law firms were just non-existent. They basically said to me straight up, they said this, if you want to have a baby or two babies, you can forget about being on the partnership track. Oh my Um, gosh. Yeah. That was before, you know, laws came into play, Um, (laughs) but you know, I mean, I think along my professional journey, I've had a lot of things that have bothered me, even in the wealth management business. You know, when I started off at Morgan Stanley, I know there was a different pay structure for different people. And I fought against that and lost that fight. But I desperately you know, needed to get a job at that point. So those types of things have definitely impacted me along the way and made me more of an advocate tell women women to be advocates for themselves not to be afraid to negotiate yeah. and to try to you know buck the system i think things are getting a bit better but we still have a long way to go and then certainly in my divorce this was a situation where i actually did get a divorce decree that provided alimony and child support for my children who two of them were in high school one was in uh just entering university and there are a lot of costs associated with that But for reasons that are, you know, outside the purview of this particular podcast, my ex-husband stopped paying the alimony and that caused a whole lot of problems. And he just did it suddenly. And that meant he wanted to go back to court for a revision on the decree but that took two years for the court date to occur and it was all happening in London so I had to keep going back to London but in the interim you know I still had children who were in school and I still had some a child at university that I didn't want to take out because she was a good student and a good kid and I still had to pay the rent and so the money that I did had, have, you know, it got diminished very quickly um, because I was trying to support four people. And it, it then it caused me to go into debt because I had to still pay legal fees and I needed to get through you know like just paying rent and feeding my children and so one day i was i was trying to get jobs and you know at that point i'm like a 55 year old woman there were not people lining up to hire me regardless of my pedigree or my you know my 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 resume and my background so it was really very very scary i mean i was to the point where i was selling jewelry to just get through you know the day and, and make sure that we kept the roof on, over our heads. So we did go through this long court case, and, but somewhere in between all of that, I, I was just like, you know what, my kids are, are okay now, they're kind of acclimated uh, here in the United States. So I'm gonna just make getting a job be my job. And I applied for so many different jobs and there was a lot of rejection and a lot of fear because again, I'm not, I wasn't particularly young And then I got the job at Morgan Stanley and which was right in my wheelhouse. So whether it was just dogged persistence on my part and, you know, applying for over a hundred jobs and, and, or just divine intervention, whatever it is, I got the job and it was the perfect job for me to build um, a really wonderful career that I have now, but it could have ended very badly for me. And I blame myself for some of this, right? Because I did not have my eye on the ball. And while I was married, I was busy with the children or, you know, busy with the house, whatever I was doing. And I, you know, but I just wasn't paying attention to the financial situation. And that really came back to be a detriment to me. So I think, you know, when I think back on that whole thing, I, there were ways that I could have made sure that I wasn't in that position that I wasn't at that point. And now I know what those things are. And I very much want to share them with everyone that I know. <laughs>
0: I'm so glad you're you're being open and vulnerable about this. It's one of those things where my my parents split when I was in high school, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad has had his own business. It was one of those things where I don't even know if my mom knew at any given point how much money they had. I think she was so hands-off. And I I hear the story so often that. I love that you wrote this book and you're talking to women because as we mentioned, this is not only a problem that happens to women, but it seems like it does happen more frequently to women. Is that what you find too with, even with your clients?
1: Yes. And I do. And you know, it's not just divorce, right? You know, somebody, you could have a partner who, who drops dead, you know, right? Right. suddenly. But I think the thing is, is that historically we, women have not had the same money conversations that their male counterparts have yeah. um, as, as younger children, as adolescents, so on and so forth. And I hope over time that changes and I think it would be really good if we could get some personal finance education going on in high school. But I do think that women have not the experience and the benefit of these conversations that parents might have with their sons that they don't have with their daughters. I also think that women regardless of whether we like it or not, 70% of caregiving in this country, whether it's for the elderly or for children or whatever, is done by women. So that by definition means that they are going to have more issues with, you know, having to bifurcate their time between caregiving and Professions and maybe stepping out of professions for a while, which has a great detriment to their long-term economic situation. And so, I think women and there's also you know uh, segregation in career choices. Sometimes, you know, I think women are choosing careers that are not as bulletproof as they could be. So there are a number, and then of course the pay parity thing. You know, when women still do make less money than men per hour. It's just the fact. I believe it's something like eighty-two cents to the dollar. So you know, I think we have all these disadvantages and that we need to work with. You know, there's a motherhood penalty. Women who are mothers who apply for jobs are, you know, um, less likely to get the jobs than than female counterparts who aren't mothers or male counterparts. They also, you know, they have invisible labor. They don't get paid for. So all of these things, I think put women at a disadvantage and they don't want to deal with it because it's not maybe fun and we haven't been really taught to deal with it and we haven't had role models that show us that we need to be proactive and also i mean one of the things i talk about in the book that i think is so important is learning how to talk about money with your family your partners in your life so that there's no there's no stigma to that you can still love somebody and want to know for example how much do you make how much debt do you have how you know how are we going to commingle our resources at all or or are we Um, these are things that I think women have traditionally shied away from talking about for fear that they may not look like they're in love enough or it's not feminine and you know for me if you really love someone and they really love you then you should be able to talk about money all day long because if you don't talk about it later on in the relationship it's probably going to be the reason you split up.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I completely agree with that too. I think we all see that stuff so frequently where people don't talk about money because it's taboo or you'll look like as a female, a gold digger or whatever the heck it might be. When realistically, if you're combining your lives with somebody, even if you don't commingle your finances, you should still have an idea of who you're marrying and what their financial situation is.
1: Mm Yeah, especially like if you live in a community par- property state like California, Yeah, you can have in a prenup all day long that you're going to separate debt, but you can't do that because in a community property state, even if your, if your spouse incurs the debt, it will be attributed to you even if your name's not on it because the state will say that you benefited from it in some way. You can't really carve that out in a community property state in a prenup. So one of the things I say to everybody is I know, you know, people shy away from the idea of a prenup, but very important to have, even if you are not a billionaire, it's even for regular people. And I know there's an upfront cost to it, but the cost on the upfront will save your bacon later on down the road, if it's 10 or 15 years later, Mm -hmm. if you can prevent yourself from not getting zero dollars. So I say to people who might want to be a stay-at-home mom or a stay at home dad, you know, there should be a formula in a prenup that says, hey, you know, if one of us decides to stay home, and I mainly talk to women because most Mm -hmm. of them are the ones that are going to stay home or part-time, is that you need to take into consideration, you will not be contributing to Social Security anymore. You will not be contributing to your 401k anymore. You will be taking a, you know, you'll be taking a hit on your career development and you'll be losing, you know, that benefit. And all of the, and you'll be performing a lot of invisible labor that is technically not paid for. So I'm promoting the idea of trying to quantify that in a prenup by way of some sort of formula which is getting traction with some divorce lawyers that I've been speaking to, which basically says, OK, well, if I'm out of the workforce for 10 years and I haven't contributed to my 401k for 10 years and I haven't contributed to Social Security and I'm doing all this labor, what would the equivalent be for a nanny? You know, you can come up with a number that sounds realistic mm-hmm. and take it out over the number of years that you're doing it. But that will at least give you something you know that's already written into the agreement if something were to happen later on. And we should be able to talk openly about that without guilt or fear that we look like, you know, we're somehow kind of not women who are in love with our partners.
0: Right. You know, I don't know where that stigma comes from. It's so BS. I hear that all the time too. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, if you're going to stay home and raise kids and take time out of your own career, that is absolutely valuable.
1: Absolutely. Apart. I mean, you know, I always say, and I I, got, I heard this quote some, and I always like to repeat it: is that women are supposed to work like they don't have kids and be mothers like they don't work, mm. and that's impossible, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've come a long way. You should be able to do both. And another thing that I think speaks to our anachronistic kind of mindset that we still are clinging on to is that often when women are the primary breadwinners, and I quote this in my book, you know, they will straight up lie about how much they make compared to their spouse and increase how much their spouse makes and diminish how much wow. they make. Cause they still are stuck in this notion, you know, that, that men should be the primary breadwinner. And that goes, that's what the motherhood penalty is about as well. You know, women, when they have babies, they get their amount of money that they make reduces, And men's go up because, you know, they're fathers now and they're more likely to get raises. So we still have this so ingrained in our our society thinking. And, you know, I I hope over time, because more and more women are becoming primary breadwinners. So, you know, in the interest of them having healthy, balanced lives, you know, they need to uh, understand that they shouldn't be ashamed of that and they need to take ownership of it. And, and also use their voices and make sure they're picking careers that accommodate it and companies that have policies that are favorable to flexible work hours and, you know, are actually walking the walk and talking the talk. So it's up to each of us to take responsibility to do that due diligence for the companies that we choose to work for.
0: That is such a really great point, too, of taking that ownership back, kind of that internal locus of control of, like, I I do have a say in how this works and looks. A lot of the common, like, maybe misconceptions that we have about women in the in the workplace and just this whole mindset issue, it does seem like it does come down to societal mindset. But I'm curious for you, your book did a really good job of exploring where this comes from and how we can kind of, like, bust out of this misconception. How do how do you believe women start to shift this conversation about money in general?
1: Well, I think there are two levels to this whole thing. One is a micro level, the individual level, and the other is the macro level, which is more the societal level, right? Mm-hmm. So with the micro level, I think the first thing that women can do, and I know this sounds very granular and almost boring, is that they need to get their personal finances in order. Okay. So. I think a lot of people want to live in denial and they just don't want to deal with this, you know. And I think if women have their personal infrastructure in place, they, you know, they understand how to do a budget, they get rid of their debt, they have an emergency fund, they, you know, they're maxing out on their retirement. They're, you know, they're doing all the right things that I lay out in chapter five of my book as to, you know, how to have your personal finances in order. This gives you the infrastructure, right? And when you are knowledgeable about your own financial situation, and you understand the money that's coming in, the money that's going out, and you know why you have debt, and what you need to do to get rid of the debt, and if you have a you know emergency savings in case you have an ailment, or there's something that happens to you that you can survive for six months without freaking out, or you want to change your job, and that gives you some breathing room. All of those things are going to make you a more uh, a happier person because you're going to have less stress, right? Because you have knowledge. Knowledge is power. Not having knowledge usually equates to fear, and fear usually equates to being paralyzed and not really doing anything. So each person, I think if each woman takes her own responsibility, gets knowledgeable, as a role role model to others by her behavior, then other women will see that and say, you know what? Like that woman has her, her, her shit together. I want to be like her. Right. And then I think that's the first thing is just have your personal finance house in order. The second thing I think is you need, I think women need to be more strategic in their career choices. You know, we do have a bit of career segregation, right? Women may uh, go more towards hospitality or, You know, other types of careers that may be not as bulletproof in a recession or like during COVID. So, you know, maybe take uh, some time to evaluate professions that might, you know, be a little more bulletproof. Perhaps more women could go into STEM. And, you know, I think there's that confidence versus competence thing that women struggle with. So they have to be hundred percent confident that they know a hundred percent of everything before they apply for a job. Right.
0: Yep. (laughs) All the time. It sucks. Yeah.
1: No bueno. You can't do that because I always say to my three girls, you know, good is good enough. Right. I'm not saying be a, you know, don't be, try to be perfect, but perfection can be your undoing. And there was a study uh, that was done at Hewlett Packard where they they actually told women who worked there, "You are qualified for these jobs. We think you should apply for them in at Hewlett Packard." Hmm. And a lot of the women didn't apply because they did not feel they were a hundred percent qualified, even though Hewlett Packard told them they were. No. And six and men who felt they were sixty percent qualified. Applied right, and so that's it. We have to get over that good little girl, 100% perfection that's crazy, that is going to hold you back, and it's going to cause you all kinds of psychological problems. So, so I think I do think that women need to be very intentional with their career choices. Again, they need to look for companies that are actually putting in place policies and you know, walking the walk for people to be parents to maybe work remotely if they need to, um, not having metrics of evaluation based on face time in the office, but actual mm-hmm. results. Yep. Look into all of those things because that will give you a better career. And then of course, you know, negotiating. You can't, you know, there are ways to negotiate without people think you're thinking you're, Bitchy, yep. um, and it's even a shame that I have to say that because men can negotiate all day long, and and no one is ever going to accuse them. They're going to be considered confident, strong, whatever. Women sometimes it gets a little bit convoluted, and people may make a lot of commentary about it. But I do think there are ways to negotiate. You can try to make it look like it's for the betterment of the company or whatever. There are ways mm-hmm. to position it, but you got to negotiate for yourselves. And I also think this goes into your personal life. You know, Choose partners that are going to talk to you openly about their finances, know what their debt is so they know what your debt is. Really choose someone you can have a good conversation with because again, if you, if you can't have these kinds of conversations, you will probably be the one to suffer and it will be the, the detriment of the relationship down the line. Now on a macro level, I would say your vote is very important. So if you care about the child care tax credit or you care about, you know, pregnancy protection and the law or, you know, par- gender parity, then you need to vote in that way so that we actually can start making change through, you know, the government. I'm now, sure. the government can't solve everything. So again, I always go back to, so you know, it's our personal responsibility to, 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 in, to put these things in motion in our own lives. And if we can get one woman at a time to do it, then we have a movement, you
0: know. Imagine you're in a meeting. And in this meeting, your company tells you these are our hiring goals. They're very aggressive. But when everyone looks to you, you're calm. Why? Because you know you don't need a miracle you need indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites, searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data USA. One of the things I love most about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because of instant match with instant match. As soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. It's really, really great. Even better. Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsor job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash money nerds offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 job credit at indeed.com slash money nerds. Indeed.com slash money nerds. Terms and conditions do apply. Pay per qualified applicant, not available for all users. If you need to hire, you need indeed. I agree. I totally agree. So I'm I'm curious you mentioned getting your financial foundation kind of set up and you did you dedicated a chapter to this and you even detailed out some like really fun budget apps and all different kinds of stuff that will help people meet them where they are. I'm curious for for you, when you're working with clients and you're seeing, helping them set up their financial foundation, what are you finding is maybe like one of the more difficult pieces for people to set up?
1: Well, I think a lot of people um, have very good intentions about saving money. Yeah, But the problem is, is that we're human, right? And as, <laughs> we want stuff. Yeah. We like to spend money. We want to, you know, right. and Americans, especially they love to spend money, you know? We do. And uh, so I think one of the best things that people can do, in fact, I'm going to have a meeting with somebody on Friday about this, who is a very successful doctor, but you know, with all the money being made, nothing's being saved. Um, <laughs> it happens. You know, these things have to be put on automation. Mm. I'm a big believer in that. So, you know, automate money going into your savings account, automate money going into your investment account. And that takes all the guesswork out of it, right? So if you've done your budget and you know what, so hopefully you have some money left over from your fixed expenses, right? Then you have your discretionary expenses and that's that's a variable. You can control that, right? Maybe you don't need every subscription on TV or maybe you don't need to have that extra pair of shoes. And there are ways to kind of, you know, help yourself not spend too much money. Like I have some tips in the book, but for example, if you're going to buy something, maybe think about how many hours of work is that thing going to cost me? Is it really oh, worth it? hurts. You know, or the 24 hour rule, which is what I employ just, don't. <laughs> me stress, too. you know, wait, because it's so easy to buy stuff online. You could be sitting here working and then you maybe want to look at the newspaper online and whatever you read. And then all of a sudden all these ads are popping up and they know what you like. And you could just buy something and not even think twice about it. And then the next thing, you know, it's being delivered. And you're like, oh, right. Yeah, like, I that. forgot about um, that. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, try to turn off all of those ads and cut down on the subscriptions. But I'm a big believer in the automation. I have that for myself as well. I have money that goes directly to my investment account every month. I don't even have to think about it. I know it's going. And I think you have to take the discretion out of that because there's always going to be something else that you might want to spend your money on hundred I mean, percent, if you have a 401k, you, you really do need to max out on that before you start investing in any other things. Um, so I always say, if you have that and a company match, that's you know tax deferred investing. And if you have a company match, that's free money. So never turn that away. But I, I also say to people too, straight up, if you are in debt, then you shouldn't be investing. You, you need to get rid of the debt because debt will be your undoing. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying never use credit cards. I do use my credit cards, but, you know, I pay them off every month because, I, you know, debt is not your friend. And if you are paying these interest rates and carrying that over time, it's just it's just not good. So you need to get your budget in order know what's coming in, know what's going out, know what you can cut back on. There's certain fixed costs you're going to have to spend money on. And there, the other things are just discretionary. So you need to work with that, maybe make some sacrifices along the way. And then the goal is to pay down the debt. And then after that, to really establish an emergency fund. If you can do that, Mm -hmm. then you're in good shape to move on to any other type of investing that you might want to do. But, um, I would definitely say, and so if you are not able to start saving because you've got to pay down the debt, then you've got to pay down the debt and you've got to be really a disciplinarian with yourself. And you can, you know, there are different methods to use, however motivates a person the best in debt, you know, reduction, debt snowball, debt avalanche. But yeah, I mean, that is something you need to get rid of because it will just follow you around relentlessly and not let you get ahead.
0: It is so true. Debt is just one of those things where it it takes away all of your cash flow. And it's that emotional burden too that we sometimes forget about. We think, great, it's just a new car payment. What's the big deal? But it, it kind of hurts. It helps you make decisions and sometimes not in a great way. So I'm I'm with you hundred percent on that too.
1: Yeah. And I know it's like it's boring, but the thing is, is that when you do pay your debt down, and I had to do this right? Because during my divorce, you know, I needed to survive and and so I get it, you know, I get it. There are situations where sometimes, you know, you're just up against it. But when you can come out of that, and remember, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. We got to give ourselves the grace to do these things in baby steps. I think the whole point is not to become overwhelmed by the whole size of it, because that's when people just throw up their hands and say, A, this is boring. B, this is scaring me. And I just, I just would rather not think about it. So I think just starting with the budget That at least gives you clarity. And now with, you know, all the apps out there, it makes it so easy that you don't really have to do anything. It will just tell you exactly what's going on with your finances when you link all your accounts. And you can also put like, you know, uh, reminders on there or they can issue like little warning signals to you Mm -hmm. if you spend more than you were supposed to. Um, And all of that stuff will be helpful in just keeping you on track. And that's really the first step of everything is the budget. And that's it. Have your badass budget, make sure you know what it is. And that will be kind of the indicator of how the rest of this is going to go for you.
0: I love this so much. There's an element of, I'm hearing you talk about this and and I can't help but think of my mom, when she went through this situation where she was divorced and now trying to figure out how do I survive? How do I get my finances in order? How do I start to build wealth? And I remember Kimberly, there was a time where she actually truly has said out loud, I'm just too old for retirement. Like it's too late for me to even start investing. I have to figure something else out. I know there's a lot of people that feel that way too, but can you like speak to that person for a
1: second? Well, you know, look, it's never too late to start. I mean, I'm the poster child for that because I had to play catch up. You know, I dissipated all my assets for taking care of my children and whatnot. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, Susie Orman would say I was wrong about that because I know she often says, you know, uh, don't educate your children if you're taking it away from your (laughs) retirement. But as a mother and someone who had a great education, I just couldn't do that. And I did, you know, it did come to my detriment. So the re- the reality is, is for me, I'm just going to have to work longer than I mm-hmm. probably would have if I had been working all the time throughout my career. And, and I'm aware of that, you know, but I am playing catch up. I am, you know, feverishly maxing out and contributing to my 401k. I am saving and building up my investment account. So, you know, and then I will be entitled to social security. I mean, the other thing for a lot of people who haven't been in the workforce is they may not be entitled to social security if they don't, you know, work the appropriate number of quarters that they have to work, right? Mm. And so, for some people who are married, you can get a spousal benefit, which is half of what your working spouse uh, gets, so you mm-hmm. can get something. One thing I do tell people, and this is kind of a non sequitur, but um, I've had a couple people who were considering getting divorced, and they were married like nine years, and I said, "Well." I think you should wait until you've been married one year after 10 years. Yep, totally. If you're, if you're married 10 years and you don't get remarried again, regardless of whether your spouse gets, ex-spouse gets married again or not, you can be on their spousal benefit. And for some women that might be, or people, that might be the only social security they're ever going to be able to get. But I would say, even if you're in your 60s, if you have the energy and ability to start to work and save, do it because in the end, it's going to provide you with a much better retirement. I mean, the problem is, is that social security for most people is not going to be enough to get them through their retirement. It's just not enough money to even live a basic life, really. So some people have pensions, but that's a rarity. But yeah, if you're starting late like me and you're having to be a reinvention artist, um, I think you should... You, you have to be motivated to, to continue to work and contribute. And excuse me, and for me, like I was, I hated everything I went through because it was really painful. And, but now that I'm at the other end of it, I realized like, this is my time to self-realize, right? Yes, totally. Life, life has so many seasons. And I, if I hadn't gotten that divorce and I had stayed in London, I would have never done any of this. Right. I won't be talking to you right now. Right. You know, and I believe this is my destiny. So sometimes it all happens for a reason. And I do think more and more people are just working longer. They're not retiring at 62 anymore. I mean, what the heck are you going to do anyway at 62? I'm always like, what would I do all day? I, know. Um, I,
0: mean, so I think of that all the time too. I'm like, I'm not going to sit on a beach.
1: That sounds kind of boring
0: after a couple hours.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I could do that for like a month. And then after a month, I'd be <laughs> yeah. like, everyone would, I'd probably end up just drinking too much because I'd be Me too. on the beach drinking rosé wine all day. Um, <laughs> sounds kind of nice right now, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad idea. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, it. you know, I think it's a, it's a new day dawning. I do think that the notion of people retiring at 62 and 65 is, is really not, especially if people have been, there have been people who even have invested, but they've invested poorly and, you know, they have yeah. to keep making up for their poor decisions. So, and, you know, with longevity too, you know, we're all living longer and women are living even longer than men. So they are, you know, generally outliving men by about five years, which means they have five more years of expenses, five more years of medical costs. So these are, you know, that's another reason why I think it's very urgent for women to be focusing on this because they are going to have a lot longer to deal with being alive and paying for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't want to have a retirement where you don't live in dignity because yeah, that's no fun.
0: No, and, and it's so... Crazy there. I had a guest come on one time that was talking about healthcare costs as you age. And even if you were to go have somebody just come into your house and help you occasionally, the costs of that stuff is extraordinarily high, like blew my mind kind of high. And so not having that in order, it's scary. So I love that you're talking to people and telling them like, Hey, take advantage of this, use that time to get that 401k match, really get your finances in order and put that future of i mean i view it as self care like really take that time for self care for future
1: you it's totally totally about self care and self love yeah. if you care about yourself you are going to make this a priority as you would going to get a mammogram or some other preventative test and to your point about you know this uh what happens in old age you know so my parents are 91 and 93 now my mom has dementia I am a sandwich generation person, right? I've got children who I still help in some ways, not my older daughter, but my younger daughter's in law school and my middle daughter is still figuring out what she wants to do. And, and so, and then I have my parents. So if I had known what I knew now, and, and this is specifically, I would like to say to millennial people, you know, you need to talk to your parents about what they have in, uh, what they planned for their long-term care? Do they have a long-term care insurance yeah. policy? Do they have enough money to self-fund if they need to go into a nursing home or if they want to have in-care nurses in their home if they need it? I didn't have that conversation with my parents because nobody ever talked about that. Right? No, um, we are kind of the first generation to have these parents that are living to be very old like no one ever talked about prenups when I got married the first time in 1987. So if I knew what I knew now, I would have had a prenup, right? Definitely. But I didn't. I got married again two years ago and I do have a prenup. But, you know, my parents, I am helping them uh, with in-home care now because they need a lot of care and they've lived in their home for over 60 years and I don't really want to put them in a facility because I've gone to look at them and uh, even the nice ones kind of wigged me out a little bit. Same and, exactly. um, you know, my mom would need to be in memory care. And when I looked in Pennsylvania where they live, for the two of them, I'd have to then put my dad in memory care, which he doesn't need and that wouldn't be fair. But just assuming I would do that, the care for, the, for a married couple, it was going to be about 200,000 a year. Oh my gosh. And right, so even now I've got, almost uh, not quite 24-hour care because my mom is still with it enough to know who we are and everything, but and she doesn't like people in the house all the time, but they're there for sure. three quarters of the day. And, you know, it's expensive. I mean, you know, you've got to pay people. And whether you're doing it through an agency or privately, you know, agencies rates are around $33 an hour. Man. And if you've got 15 or 16 hours of care, you know, you can do the math. So this is something that we need to be talking about. And, and millennials, Need to be talking about their parents with like my children should be saying to me, "What are you going to do?" You know, when if something happens and you don't, you know, you're not able to care for yourself. Well, I'm, you know, long-term care policy, and I'm trying to, you know, save as much money as I can so that if I have to self-fund at some point, I can do that. Um, But this is a really big question because it is a very, very expensive endeavor.
0: It totally is, and I think it's a it's an awkward question. There's that powdered butt syndrome of like, once somebody powders your butt, they don't want to talk about money from with their kids. And it is important though, because it it does impact us tremendously. So I'm curious, let's say you have a parent that is not receptive to this conversation. They're just like, you know what now, and you just want to refer them to somebody to at least start that conversation that maybe isn't their child. Who do you point them to? Is that a financial advisor? Is it an attorney? Like, who is it?
1: There are financial planners that are not necessarily financial advisors. Like you can hire a financial planner that yep. can literally just run a financial plan for, for you. And that might cost a few thousand bucks that at least like for me, I always find running financial plans is very eye opening for everyone involved. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, you can put all kinds of assumptions in there, but you know what you have, you know what money you're going to have coming in, whether it's social security or pensions, you know what your investment account is. And you can then determine, you know, okay, um, if my expenses are X, how long is my money going to last until I'm 100? And that, if you factor into that as an assumption, maybe you run a a scenario where someone has to go into care or get care, then you can see the amount of money they're going to need per year is going to pump up tremendously. And that's going to, you know, start bringing down the money that they have available to them and probably they'll run out of money sooner. So I think that's a really good way just through numbers that don't Mm -hmm. lie, that show you how the money gets, you know, dispersed over time. And if it's not, you know, you could go to a financial advisor as well who could run a plan or they could you know probably talk to someone who sells long-term care insurance cuz now they have these long-term care policies that are hybrids so if you don't use it it can become a, a like an insurance policy that turns into a death benefit for one of your heirs so before it was like either use it or lose it you yeah, pay all yeah. these really expensive premiums now you can pay the expensive premium but it could turn into a death benefit so it's not all for naught if luckily you don't have to use it yeah. Um, because it means that you're not, you know, lo- you know, don't need all the care. But I also think that if your parent um, says that, then I think you have to say to your parent, and I know this might sound a bit harsh, but I would say to your parent, um, you're being very selfish because this not only affects you, but this affects me because if I'm a caring and loving child, I'm not going to want to see you in harm's way. Right. And it affects the whole family. You know, I mean, certainly trying to care for somebody who has dementia, that's it, you know, it affects a, a lot of my life. I mean, I, I'm an only child, so I really am totally responsible. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think you have to kind of really get people to focus. And this is one of those money conversations because money conversations aren't just with a partner or a spouse. It's also with your family, these kinds of things, you know, and and you need to just say, you know, like we need to talk about this because, um, and, and just also, you would need to know what their medical directives are too. You know, mm-hmm. everyone should have some sort of planning w- with a will or a trust, and then also the medical directives and powers of attorney, so that if the person cannot make any decisions for themselves, there's somebody there that can do it. Because you know, you, you don't want other people making those decisions.
0: No, no, and especially when when you have instances where. You don't like. I have a, a good friend too that her her mother went through Alzheimer's and it it got it got rough, you know. And if she wouldn't have had those documents in place, yeah, knowing exactly what her mom wanted, it would have been a really tough situation on her too. And yeah. so it was. It became a. It's a crappy conversation to have, and it's really it sucks. Like nobody wants to have these conversations, but they're so critical. And so I'm really glad that you are bringing this stuff up. To just remind us of like, hey, we need to do our due diligence here and have these conversations, even if they hurt and even if they're awkward.
1: Right. I mean, my grandparents died when I was when they were 63. So oh, wow. my they're parents were young. Yeah, they didn't have to deal with any of this, but it can really affect families because mm-hmm. you know I have so many friends whose parents are either moving in with them or they're trying to figure out where to put them and expensive and oh my God. You know, it's it because you you know, unless you're a heartless person, you can't just turn your back on your parents or your aunt or whoever. So it is a really big issue that we need to talk about and people need to like get over any sort of awkwardness or fear they have in talking about it. I think Mm -hmm. it's something that's really important because it will cut into the child's finances at a time when that person is probably having children of their own, have their own expenses that they need to contend with, and then you add this other thing onto it if it's not planned for, that, that can really ruin oh, for you know, sure. the younger, the, the child or who's an adult at this point, but their financial situation, you know.
0: Yeah, um, a couple hundred thousand dollars, that, that's no small amount.
1: Yeah, and also it's just the psychological aspect of it, you know. Like mm-hmm. I, I was just trying to put together this team of care workers, and it was really difficult because you know agencies don't have of staffing; um, they can't guarantee you the same person, they can't even guarantee you the shift, you know, because they're having a hard time finding people to staff. So there's a real psychological element to this as well. It's it's uh, it can be very you know taxing. So all of these conversations um, are important to have early on. So whether it's before you get married uh, or, you know, with your parents, um, all of these things you need to get sorted out so that there are no big surprises down the road that could really upset the apple cart, you know?
0: Amen to that. I, I can't help but feel that so much of this conversation we've been having comes down to women supporting women, like, like truly not just like saying girl power, but truly supporting each other and coming together to have these difficult conversations and being vulnerable and open. And Hey, here's what I'm going through with my kids. This is what I'm going through with my parents. This is what I personally am going through of having that safe place where we can openly communicate about finances.
1: Yeah. And not feel guilt. Like, Hey, you know, if you're, if you have to, if you want to work, and you are working, and maybe you don't know, you know, where I was listening to someone. I was having a conversation with someone the other day, and they said, you know, um, she's a full-time working mom, and um, I believe she's also the primary breadwinner in her house, and she said, you know, I, I realized my husband usually does the lunch boxes every day, and uh, and for whatever reason, she had to do it this one day, and she said, I realized I didn't know where the lunch boxes were, yeah, and then totally. she said, and then I thought, oh, I'm not going to feel guilty about this because I'm paying for the lunch boxes. So, you know, we need to be nicer to ourselves, right? Everything yes. isn't going to be perfect. You know, it's not going to be a 1950s, you know, family show like, you know, we call, you know, people kind of think it's the per- perfect family. It's a pretty bunch. <laughs> um, yeah. Women need to, like, you know, understand that now it's a different day. You can't do everything. Be kind to yourself. And support other women vote in a way that you know helps women and also just by just taking responsibility for yourself and saying I know I'm busy and there's a lot of people that want my time but this is so important that I've got to spend time on this because this is literally about my self-survival and my self-care and myself you know longevity and those are the things that we just you know, we, we often don't focus on because we're busy worrying about, you know, we have to work and we've got to go to the mm-hmm. soccer match or we have a million You know, other things that we as women want to do, whether we're mothers or not, you know. Yeah. But again, this will be the thing that keeps you centered. And that's what this is about, you know. And if you can show other women by your actions that you've got it together and you're feeling calm because you understand your money. And, nobody else, and your money isn't controlling you or somebody else isn't controlling your money, then each person will see that and they'll start thinking, yeah, I want to be like that woman, you know?
0: I love it so much. Kimberly, this is such a good conversation. It's, It's been very eye-opening for me, too, of just thinking about the bigger picture conversations I need to be having with my own close family and friends and thinking through these pieces where sometimes I avoid them, if I'm being yeah. honest. I mean,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, you can always introduce wine into the conversation after. It helps everything. Yeah. As long as everyone doesn't get drunk and you remember what you talked about. But, you yeah, know, no to, to, set up the conversation without it being like, you know, very, uh, too clinical, but you yeah, know.
0: exactly. Exactly. I love your book so much too. The fiscal feminist. So for everybody that wants to pick up a copy of your book, and I highly recommend they do. I think there's so many good nuggets of wisdom here. Where's the best place for them to get their hands on the book.
1: So they can go on to Amazon and just type in the fiscal feminist, the financial wake up call for women and it will pop up and they can pre-order it and then it will be out in bookstores on May 30th. Also they should check out my Instagram page at the Fiscal feminist and there is also a website www.thefiscalfeminist.com. I, I because I know not everyone can, you know, have a wealth manager. So for people that want a consultation, I'm happy to do our consultations, or they can get a package of three and I can go through their personal finance or investing questions or uh, conversational questions about how to approach certain things. So I'm trying to make it as many ways that people can learn as possible, but the book, it would be great if people bought the book. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: It's a great book. Congrats on writing a book too. That is always so impressive to me. I'm like, Oh my, you wrote a book. That's incredible. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and I was so cavalier about it because after I started doing the blogs, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to write a book, and um, and then I start writing the book, and I was like, oh my god,
0: like, what? <laughs> what did I open up?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I was like every weekend because I have a you know a job during the week, right? It's <laughs> totally time consuming, so it was just like two years of weekends of me, you know, sitting up in my office writing the book while people are out at the pool or. Like whatever, you know, and I was just like such a Debbie Downer because I never left my office. (laughs) But I got the book done. (laughs) And now it's pool time. (laughs) Sometimes like I'm flipping through the book and I read it. I'm like, how did I have time to write this book? Isn't that
0: amazing? I'm so impressed. It's a great book too. And you I could tell you put a lot of thought and time and energy into speaking to females specifically about, hey, let's think about this stuff differently. So I, I really do think it's a great book and congratulations again for for launching it and putting it out into the world.
1: Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I really appreciate that.
0: Yeah, Kimberly, before we officially part ways, are you down for some rapid fire questions? I'm ready. All right. I'm nervous, but I'm ready. <laughs> no, don't be nervous. This would be great. Okay, first question. Where's one location you're dying to travel to? Base
1: camp of Mount Everest. What? Yes, I have it in my head that this is, I even have Mount Everest on my phone, but we'll see oh if that ever happens.
0: God. Okay, if you do come back on the show, because I need to hear all about it. That sounds incredible.
1: Yeah, I will. If I survive that, I will definitely come back on the show. <laughs> you have to, that, that's like
0: amazing. Okay, my next question for you, aside from your own book, what is one book you find yourself gifting to people most often?
1: There is a book that I read on essentialism about what are the things that you should really be spending your time on the most. Like, so just for me, time management is always, yeah. you know, a trick, right. Cause we're talking about that now, even in my book. So it's called essentialism and uh, I believe the guy's name is Ian McCune, but I've given that to my children. And um, it's just a book about like really focusing on what's most important with your time. Mm,
0: that is a great book too. I appreciate that recommendation. Next question for you. Are you more of a morning or evening routine person? And if so, what is your morning or evening
1: routine? 100% morning. I usually get up anywhere between 5 and 6 a.m. On the days I get up at 5, it means I'm going to the gym for a 6 o'clock kind of a boot camp thing I do. If I don't go to the gym, then I go run. I have a treadmill and a Peloton. And so I go into my little room with my treadmill and my Peloton. So I work out because... A, I'm constantly, you know, on a diet um, because I go from overeating to, you know, I'm um, me,
0: me too. But yeah, for
1: me, it's really about like my head. It just gives me a chance to let my, my mind wander and, you know, not have anything to do, but focus on like getting my endorphins up and just thinking. So I do that in the morning. And then usually after that, you know, I have a quick breakfast and I just start to work. That's my morning routine. And then I also um, occasionally a couple of days a week, I will take maybe a half an hour before I start to work to do some just reading, just to have a moment to just quietly read before the mayhem of the day.
0: Is it typically fiction or nonfiction?
1: I usually, I know this is boring, but I usually only read nonfiction. I do, I, I will read like mystery novels when I'm on vacation and stuff, mm-hmm. but Generally, there's so many things I want to read. So, you know, I'm, I'm reading this book called The Why Now, you know, but why, you know. Oh, why Simon we... Sinek. Yeah, love that book. I'm in the middle of reading that. So I get up and read a little bit about that every day before I start. Oh, love that. That is such a good one too. I'm always like, you know, reading things like that. I have so many books stacked up that I need to read. Like I hope I live to be a thousand because I've got a lot of books to read. (laughs) That's a good problem. Yeah, right. I'm interested.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I like that. I think it's great. My last question for you is in your opinion, what is the secret to financial success?
1: It's not living in denial. Mm. I think if you take out denial and you take out fear, then you have half a chance of being successful at this. I think when you when you just don't want to look at something and you just want to live in denial and you can't just put your eyes wide open as to what's going on, then you can never make good decisions. And then you couple that with fear, whether it's fear of you know, confronting your debt problem, or as an investor, you're fearful and you come out of the market, you know, when there's a lot of volatility, which is obviously not a good plan. So I would say don't live in denial, don't be fearful and be resilient. I, you know, I compliment you in all your success and your endeavors. And, um, Thank yeah, if I ever make it to base camp, I'll definitely let you You know. have to, you have to. I'm like dying now. Well, you know, I, I like, see you. if only I didn't have to carry a backpack on my way up there. <laughs> Turns out, I'm, right? I'd be willing and able to, um, you know, to do that. Life is never linear. And sometimes, you know, you're going to have to work a little bit harder than others. And there's going to be some stuff that happens along the way that isn't pleasant. But in the end, when you look at your life and you do your gratitude list, you'll realize that it's just a test and you, you will come out better from that. So that was probably more than one thing, but they're all rolled up together in my mind.
0: I love that. That was such a beautiful way to wrap up this conversation. Kimberly, thank you so much for your time. I truly enjoyed getting to know you and hearing a little bit more about all of your life work. This is
1: incredible. No, Whitney, you're awesome. I I'm so I'm flattered that you asked to talk to me and I hope that we can speak again. And I love it so
0: much. Kimberly, thank you so much for your time. It was so fun chatting with you and I will uh, definitely keep you posted when this goes live and I'll say hi to you on Instagram.
1: Yes, please do. And I will to you as well. And again, thank you so much. This was such great fun. I I agree.
0: Thank you. We'll talk soon. Okay. What'd you think? I love this episode, I thought it was so interesting and so informative, and more than anything, I think it's really important for people that feel like they're behind the ball. They're behind on retirement and their career choices and now they're pivoting or facing a death or a divorce or whatever the heck comes up, or even just a second life. And it's really overwhelming, but I think this episode was really good for those people. So I'm really excited if that's you and this resonated with you. All right, guys, that is it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I will see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds podcast. Bye.